Uh, so what I want to do this morning is talk to you about six ways to meditate. These are not the only six ways to meditate. These are six broad umbrella categories, um, so I think that they will be illustrative, but there are probably 10,000 ways to meditate, but I just want to talk to you about kind of comparing and contrasting uh, six fairly common different ways as a way of kind of clearing up some common confusions uh, about what meditation is. Hint, it's not just one thing right? That I, I think many people have an idea that meditation is just one thing, and often they're wrong about what that one thing is, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, and I want to share some tips that I wish I had known many years ago that I think will hopefully be useful to some of you who are, uh, who in here is either a meditation enthusiast or at least meditation curious? Okay, okay, that's good. That, that, that bodes well for the next uh, hour. Uh, and uh, I want to answer some, one of the most common questions, which is, you know, how do I know if I'm making progress in meditation? Again, there's not just one thing. There, there are multiple metrics that one can consider. And you'll see, um, for those online, if you click on that Google Doc link in the chat, and for those in person, if you look at that white sheet, you're going to see a graphic that's going to kind of graphically represent six ways to meditate. And, and over the course of the next hour, I'm going to um, kind of move us through these six ways and talk about how they interrelate. And you can kind of keep glancing back to this uh, handout, uh, the cover of the order of service, to help. And what I'm going to be inviting, the model that I'm inviting us to consider with these six ways is a kind of contemplative cross-training. In the same way that for your physical body, cross-training, you know, that can help to like run, bike, swim, do weights, do yoga, that all of those, it's not like there's one best thing, like your body needs lots of different things. Meditation is kind of like that. So here at the beginning, let me tell you just a little bit of my uh, story. I think that might be helpful before we start moving through each of the six ways. I don't want to get lost in the detail of my story. I could tell uh, you know, this in much longer, but I'm going to kind of give you some broad strokes. And I also don't want to imply in any way that my story is paradigmatic or that this needs to be your story, but I just want to tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from in the spirit of transparency. And if anything, I'm telling you my story because I, I hope you can help um, maybe skip some of the pitfalls or the things that, that, uh, that may be helpful to you. Maybe you can move even a little faster along the path than, than I have, depending on your time and interest, of course. Some of you may ne never meditate again after this service, and that is also fine. There are lots of things to do with your life. Uh, to use another kind of physical um, parallel, I also think that, you know, how much should I meditate? It's, again, we can use kind of a physical correlate. Like, is it, a, is it better to walk around the block than to just sit in isolation all day? Yes. Is it, like, maybe a little bit better still to walk five minutes and then maybe 20 minutes and then work up to maybe you're running or biking a mile and then five miles, 10 miles? And then I'll say what I've kind of found for myself, there actually is kind of an extreme here where maybe, like, I've run one marathon in my life. I ran the Baltimore Marathon in 2018. I may or may, I probably will run a marathon again, but I've found in the meantime that, you know, running five, 13 miles, like, that's enough. It's enough. I don't have to run 26.2, right? And so meditation is, is also kind of, of like that, that, you know, there is so much value, just like the value in just standing up and walking across the room and coming back or whatever your body allows you to do. Um, there's so much value in just taking one deep breath, just... Just that can be like picking up a remote control and changing the channel in your mind. Just that. Just that. Or I sometimes invite people when I teach yoga meditation mini retreats, you know, if you don't have time to do a 10-minute, 20-minute, hour-long yoga practice, ask your body, if I have time to do one yoga stretch right now, what does my body most need? So I'm going to... So, the other side of this equation that I've been describing is I also get really frustrated from the flip side with meditation only ever being in the kitty end of the pool. So I also want to talk to you today about some of the advanced stuff that is really possible on the deep end of the pool. And I want to say that on a really hot day, splashing around in the kiddie pool can also be very refreshing. So like, it's not an, it's not an either or, it, it's really a both and. I'm also a big religion nerd, so I wanted to sort of test this stuff out for myself. Uh, 
And so if I wanted to um, answer that question, like how long did it take me to make progress in meditation, there's actually a two-decade version of that story I could tell, there's a one-decade version of the story, there's a three-year version of that story I could tell. I'm going to give you each very quickly in turn. In the, to talk a little bit about the two-decade version, in the late 1990s, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, so we didn't t- uh, meditation, if anything, was demonized. You know, yoga was like the devil, like, what are you doing? Uh, so in the late 90s, uh, I was in college, and I read, a, a, among many books, uh, one of them that stuck with me is William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. I don't know if any of you have ever read that. Anybody? I see a hand or so. Uh, William James was a Harvard psychologist around 1900, wrote this um, book. And one of the things that really planted a seed for me is he draws a contrast between secondhand religious experiences and firsthand religious experiences. And I just, I've just had that in my mind ever since. Like, because I'd had, for the preceding two decades, so much secondhand religion. So many people telling me about what religion is, in their opinion, and also reading historical reports, or second, or third, or fourth, or fifth-hand accounts of these amazing things that had allegedly happened to uh, to people, and some of which maybe did in some form. And I became really curious, wow, what would it be like, you know, what is really possible for me to experience firsthand in my direct experience, which, although I wouldn't have said at the time, also happens to be our UU first source, right? If you look on the back of your order of a source, what do I know? directly for myself. And in the early 2000s, you know, I loved seminary, I loved three years of theological education, but I also got curious to kind of go out beyond the curriculum. I started spending weeks at a time at intentional communities and monasteries. So I, was, I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was a monk, to, to pray with the monks there. I went to Koinonia Farms in Americus, Georgia. I went to Monastery of Christ in the Desert, this incredibly remote. There are times a year you can't even get there. It's 13 miles down this almost impassable road, very isolated, Osage monastery in Oklahoma, the Desert House of Prayer. And then in 2007 to 2009, I did a three-year low-residency diploma in the art of spiritual direction. That was kind of the capstone of my exploration, in particular, of the Christian contemplative tradition. So the Cloud of Unknowing, St. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, uh, and at that time, I was doing a lot of what is called centering prayer. Some of you may know the name Thomas Keaton, so I was doing that about 45 minutes twice a day. It's kind of a mantra-based practice. Um, a lot more to say about all of that. But, and I could even tell the story longer. I could go back. Some of you grew up uh, in kind of evangelical Christian circles, and there's actually some really meaningful things to me from the sort of daily quiet time. Some of you will know what I'm talking about that we used to do back then, or even retreats. I got a, I got a sense from those that still waters run deep. And although there sort of wasn't the capacity to help me and equip me to really do that, I got the sense that there's something to this daily quiet time stuff. There's something to this retreat stuff. So in 2009 was a real turning point as far as my interest in meditation. I started listening to a podcast called Buddhist Geeks. Anybody ever listen to the Buddhist Geeks podcast? All right, I actually see a hand or two. Very good. Uh, So that actually started in 2007. So I started listening in 2009 and quickly caught up on the archives. Uh, One of the co-hosts, Vince Horn, and his wife, Emily Horn, uh, have have become, over the, the last decade, my two primary meditation teachers. And that book connected me to a book by Daniel Ingram that I'm not necessarily saying you need to go out and read this, but it's a, it's a real tome of a book. It's called Mastering the Hardcore Teachings of the Buddha, uh, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. Uh, and uh, so he's a, he's a, he brought this real, like, I had previously only been exposed to what I would call sort of if this is, I, don't, I think this is fair, like baby boomer Buddhism. So like, you know, which is great, right? Like Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sylvia Borstein, like so all, all these folks, it's great. But Daniel Ingram is like in a punk rock band and Gen X and an emergency room physician and like just very edgy and hardcore in a way that I had never sort of heard the Dharma taught before. And uh, he really emphasizes mindfulness and noting. We'll, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. And I think the biggest thing that was refreshing to me about his book is he's very anti what is called mushroom culture in spirituality. So mushroom culture in spirituality is they keep you in the dark and feed you crap. Because that's, that's, that's how you grow mushrooms. And so you know that he is very transparent. It's all just right out there. It's, and I just found it incredibly illuminating, incredibly inspiring, and incredibly helpful. 
but what I wish I'd had that is that he really talks about what worked for him, and I tried to replicate that for many, many years, and, and I, I wish I had had this sort of contemplative cross-training model so that instead of just doing this, like, really doing noting all the time, it's what's sometimes called being a one-technique freak. Uh, Daniel isn't that. He's very open to other practices, but I was, I was really drawn. He said, this one thing worked best for me, and as I, I and anyway, I tried to replicate that, and I wish earlier I'd had this kind of six-way model. Uh, to sort of quickly finish up my, uh, the, the, my story part of this, in 2016, I started going on longer, like eight or longer day uh, meditation retreats, and that can make a big difference. So there's a, a reason etymologically there is a relationship between the word meditation and the word medication. And so that both because they're sort of salves for the soul and the spirit, but also because like medication, dosage matters. You know, if you like double your dosage of your medication or more or whatever, like, so it really matters to go from meditate. I mean, I was pretty hardcore. I was meditating like two hours a day, like getting up in the morning and meditating for an hour, meditating another hour usually before dinner. But going from that to meditating like eight to 10 or more hours a day, now you don't, the biggest misunderstanding about meditation retreats is people think, oh, you just sit down on your cushion and you meditate for eight hours straight. That is not, that's not how it works. Uh, most meditation retreats, I mean, you can do that if you want, but it's more like meditate for like 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, but then do walking meditation and then come back to your cushion. So even, if you even develop the capacity to sit for 45 minutes, that is the basic building block of a meditation retreat of however long you want to do. I think on that retreat, also, I learned a ton about concentration and heartfulness. Like, I'd been doing so much mindfulness, and I'll, I'll talk about those two in a second. Uh, and and I'll, the other thing, nah, I don't want to talk about that right now. I'll talk about it later. Um, so much to say. Uh, in summer 2019, I went on my third long retreat, and that was when I really got my first glimpse of, because there had been some frustrations along the way that I know some of you have experienced, because I've talked to you about your practice, of like, is this even real? Like, does this work? Like, how long is this going to take? And that, that third meditation retreat, I can't say that it's going to be, be the case for you, but that was the first time meditation, like, grabbed me. And, and I had an experience of what's called jhana. Some of you will know that word, J-H-A-N-A. And it was a very intense, rapturous experience. I've never before, incredibly pleasurable, and an experience of, that I've never had previously to that, of I really could sit on this cushion for I, forever. Like just, just completely in the moment, completely enraptured, completely. And that's, again, something that another related thing that I, would tell, that I often tell people is that trying to get jhana is the number one thing that will keep you from getting jhana. Like that's the, you just have to be open to what is happening in your experience and allowing it to unfold because grasping, I really want this to happen, like that creates the opposite condition of what allows these things. To, and I'll again say more about all of that, but that was my first real experience of like, oh, Oh, this is real. Like this is uh, this is actually happening to me in my direct firsthand experience. This is really neat. Uh, so, in I would say the next year, around fall 2019, was another major turning point. And I'm not again saying this will be catalytic for you. It just happened to be what I was doing at the time. Was a course by some of you know the um, Sounds True. Um, uh, Tammy Simon has a company called Sounds True. puts out a ton of meditation stuff. My very, I don't know if this is totally fair. Sorry, Tammy, if you're listening. I'm sure she is not. Uh, the, I find that stuff, like, about a third of what Sounds True puts out, I find to be some of the best stuff I've found anywhere. A third of it I find to be pretty good, and a third of it I kind of find to be, mm, I don't know, this smells like BS. <laughs> like, so uh, your mileage may vary on various things, you know. Uh, but uh, her, the course she produced with a meditation teacher called Reggie Ray, called Mahamudra in the Modern World, was uh, hugely influential for me. And that was really catalytic with some other um, major openings. And I would say some experiences that I won't go deeply into, but that were like, oh, so, like, you can definitely have psychedelic experiences without psychedelics. <laughs> you can definitely have psychedelic experiences on meditation. The, uh, and if I had to describe the shift, and I'm about to move into the six ways to meditate, 
if I look back to kind of the beginning of this journey where I started in college, I took a course called Japanese Philosophy. It was an absolutely fascinating course. And back then, as like a 20-year-old, I remember reading about this, this Buddhist concept of non-self. And I remember thinking as a 20-year-old, this is the most self-evident BS. Clearly, I have a self, <laughs> like, you know? And, and, and now, I would say that uh, after some of these, you know, in the last few years, it's become self-evident or just evident on the face of myself that myself is a construction. Like that's, it is almost a figure ground shift. Just the, so it's just been interesting to kind of look back. Uh, you know, I guess another way of saying it is that it's become imminently clear to me that things that I used to think were nouns and solid objects like myself are actually verbs. And they're actually, we are, it is, do you know the story where it's like, it's turtles all the way down? I've come to see its process and relationship all the way down. Uh, one of those sayings of the Buddha that you, you read in the early Buddhist suttas sometimes will be like, the Buddha said this and 20 people instantly become enlightened. So listen up, maybe it'll happen to you right now. Uh, one of those sayings is that, that the Buddha would say, and it'd be like, people just woke up. It's that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. That's just deeply a part of the Dharma. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. It is process and relationship all the way down. Everything's a verb, nothing's a noun. Uh, Chogun Chopra Rinpoche, who brought Tibetan Buddhism to the West, he used to say it this way. The bad news, the bad news is that we're in free fall and you don't have a parachute. That's the bad news. The good news is there's no ground. That's what we're talking about. It's just process and relationship and flow and everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. We are all in free fall. We do not have a parachute, but there is no ground. So, you know, what, what you're being opening to is relaxing into that groundlessness and becoming more, you know, copacetic with it, with the reality of how things are. So I began a formal uh, teacher training with, with Vince and Emily in uh, January of 2001. I'll complete that, um, I think, I'm pretty sure I will, in December uh, of, of this year. Uh, Emily did her training. I, I could talk a lot about lineage. I'll talk about that just very briefly. Uh, Emily did her teacher training through Spirit Rock, which was founded by Jack Cornfield. Vince um, is also authorized to teach through Trudy Goodman, incidentally married to Jack Cornfield, uh, the leading teacher at Inside LA. He's also authorized to teach in the pragmatic Dharma tradition of, of Kenneth Folk. So I'm not planning to hang up a shingle as a meditation teacher, but it is something I'm interested in doing um, on the side. I very much like my much more stable job here with benefits and health insurance and retirement, uh, as much as I also enjoy teaching the Dharma. Okay, let's look, so that's a little bit of my story and a little bit of where I'm coming from, though there's of course more to say about all of that. So let's move to this handout. So if you're online, there should be a link in the chat to this order of service, or if you're here. I want to start in the upper left-hand corner with that single dot. That represents the first of our six ways to meditate, concentration. So when you're practicing concentration, you're trying to get that single dot. You're trying to, uh, I, I think a better way of um, translating the, the ancient word for concentration is probably this. This comes from a guy named Lee Brasington that wrote a brilliant book called Right Concentration. He said it's indistractability. That's what we're trying to, to develop, indistractability. Because I would say the number one thing that a lot of folks misunderstand about concentration is that they think that if they have a thought then they've lost their concentration. That's not necessarily the case. Let me let you in on something. Jack Cornfield says this all the time. Our brains secrete thoughts like our saliva glands secrete saliva. It's just how they roll, right? And so the question is not, are you concentrating on something, but has your brain drifted off? Like it's one thing in the periphery of your brain to have something come up, and pass away. It's another thing if you've totally lost focus on your concentration object and you're shopping at Costco or you're lost in that conflict you had with your kid or your coworker or your parent or whatever. Does that, does that difference make sense? So have you, have you gotten distracted or not? Are you still on your focal object or have you totally lost um, track? 
And the other thing I guess I'd, uh, concentration can be very stabilizing is another piece of this. And we're going to get to mindfulness in a second. And here's the thing I think a lot of people don't appreciate. Mindfulness can be very destabilizing. And if you get really destabilized from mindfulness, do some concentration. Do some heartfulness. That's part of how these cross-training things can, can benefit each other. And another thing I wish I'd known, if you start to do a whole lot of concentration that really scared me at first, I had to go talk to a teacher about it, is that your breath can become so incredibly light as you just sit there in stillness that you can, I mean, I've sort of got scared the first time this happened to me. I'm like, am I still breathing? Because breath was actually still moving technically, biologically, you know, in and out, but it had become so soft. So light. So just a heads up, that can happen to you. You don't have to be afraid. If you actually weren't breathing, you would pass out and, and fall over, right? Um, and another important thing for me, the breath has been a very helpful concentration object. But there's a significant minority of folks that when they focus on their breath as a concentration object, it triggers kind of a PTSD or kind of panic attack reaction. So people ask, well, what do I do? Does that mean I can't do concentration objects? There are many other options. Uh, the classical name for this is called a casina. K-A-S-I-N-A. -A. And so you can, do, and they're often elemental in nature. So you can do like a fire casino. A classical example would be focusing on a candle, using that as your concentration object. Focusing on the wind. So maybe you use a wind chime, or maybe you use a just tree blowing in the wind as your concentration object. Or earth, you know, some kind of sculpture or something like that. Or water, use a bowl of water as a concentration object. So there, there definitely are options. Another piece that I wish I had known is the sort of connect, connection to the other six. So that oh, when people start doing concentration practice, they often beat themselves up. I would sometimes do that. Oh, you're so stupid. You know, you just got lost in distraction or whatever. And I began to notice, what are you practicing? Because you know, that, that's actually an invitation to bring in some heartfulness that we're going to get into later. Like, do you want to practice being harsh on yourself? Or do you want to practice? And, you can, and, and, and let me say, this is actually the even better way of fra framing it, is going over to mindfulness, where we'll shift fully in a second. If you are doing a concentration practice, and you notice that you have gotten distracted, that's actually something to celebrate, because it's a moment of mindfulness. You've become mindful of your distraction, whereas previously you were not mindful, you were mindless, right? You were mindlessly lost in a daydream or uh, the problems of the past or the future. So that is actually something to celebrate. Yes, I got, and it, 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 so you can think of it this way, to use another physical analogy, every time you notice you've gotten distracted, it's like doing a rep with a barbell. You just did a mindfulness rep, right? You just strengthened that mindfulness one little incremental bit. And Thomas Keating, kind of going back to Centering Prayer briefly, he used to say, if you notice you've become distracted, um, return to your concentration object uh, with the softness and the compassion of a feather touching a cotton ball. You know, that, that's kind of what we want to cultivate within ourselves. So to begin to shift to, uh, I guess the other kind of piece I would bring to this too, that I, uh, before I move on to mindfulness, that I think a lot of folks um, miss, is that they, they go, they, they meditate for the first time in the way that if someone went into the gym on day one and expected to bench press their body weight, that's not going to go well, right? If you go, unless you're like a construction worker as, as your uh, vocation, right? Then maybe you can bench press your body weight on the first day of the gym. But like with meditation, you have to build it up, right? You got to start with the five-pound weights before you can get to the 10-pound weights, before you can get, so it, it, it does take some time to build up your capacity. And why don't we take, let's just do about a three-minute meditation right now. I want to do, before we move into mindfulness, I just want to settle us in a little bit. So we usually meditate for about a minute. We're going to do three minutes. And in this meditation, I just want to invite you to do a simple breath counting technique. So uh, every time you breathe in, uh, count one. And then when you at the bottom, of, and breathe naturally. That's another thing that I, I, I misunderstood when I first started doing meditation. I thought I had to control my breathing. Your body, trust that your body knows how to breathe itself. I promise that it does. So just let your breathe be naturally. And just when you breathe in, one, and the reason it's good to count 
One on your inhale is that our natural conception of a complete cycle is breathing in and breathing out. And if you count one at the bottom of your exhale, that sets you up a little more to be like one and I'm back at Costco or I'm thinking about what I'm gonna watch on Netflix tonight, right? So, but if you count one at the top of your inhale, then you're naturally gonna, it's just, it just it's, makes it one little bit easier to stay under concentration object. So at the top of your inhale, one, and out. Top of your next inhale, two, and out. Top of your next inhale, three. And then here's the other trick. Never more than 10, never less than one. It's not a contest. We're not, just, we're not seeing, oh, I got to 200 this time. Like that, that gets you all up in your head. And if you get distracted, if you totally lose your concentration object, just go back to one. It's nothing, it's nothing more than that. And you're going to do it anyway if you get to 10. So let's try this just for three minutes. So I'm going to set the, the app that I would most recommend if you want to get serious about this. It's called Insight Timer. It's free. And uh, the best thing about it is it holds the time for you. Because the other pernicious thing that people sometimes do when they start meditating is they're, they're constantly looking at the clock. They're constantly, so have something else keep your time, insight timer. So you're going to hear a bell at the beginning and a bell three minutes later. And just never less than one, never more than ten. Just see how it goes. See how strong is your concentration in this moment. And if you notice any distraction, just come back and be gentle with yourself. Let's try it. You hear a bell at the beginning and a bell three minutes later.
So concentration is one way to meditate, and there's a whole lot more to say about concentration, and there's a saying that you know, dharma gates are endless, and concentration is just one, but it can be, uh, you know, it, it, it is one way in, and, it, and one among many possible ways to sort of shift from a more novice meditator to a more advanced meditator is really developing the capacity for like 45 minutes to keep your you know, stay indistractable on your concentration object, and it, it really is possible. You just have to keep doing those reps. Let's shift over to mindfulness. So back to your little chart, we're gonna shift from the one dot, concentration, indistractability, to mindfulness. And notice that mindfulness is polka dots, right? So it's like, so unlike concentration, mindfulness is uh, mindfulness is, is uh, well, let me give, I'll start with this. The most famous modern definition of mindfulness is from a guy named John Kabat-Zinn. Some of you will know the name Howard Zinn, uh, wrote a book, a really important book uh, called The People's History of the United States on, on Social Justice. John Kabat-Zinn is married to Howard Zinn's daughter. Uh, and uh, anyway, his definition of mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally. Not just paying, atten paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Uh, or Vince, one of my meditation teachers, often says it, it's, it's paying attention in real time. What's happening to me? What's, what's really happening to me right now? Not the stories of my mind, right? Many of you have heard me quote Brene Brown, right? That you, you know, the story I'm telling about this is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> that may or may not be an accurate assessment of the situation. But the story, you know, you don't have to believe everything you think. That can take you an incredibly long way. You don't have to believe everything you think. Uh, so, you know, so it's about getting, mindfulness is about shifting from the conceptual level to the basic sensory level. What am I noticing through what are called the six sense gates? Uh, Joseph Goldstein sometimes says it this way. Anything that has ever happened to you, you perceived through one of six ways. One of the five senses or thinking. Like everything that's ever happened to you is a smell, a taste, a touch, a sound, uh, you know, or thinking. It's one of those six things. And so noting is about, and I'm not saying conceptual thinking is bad. Most of us get paid for conceptual thinking, but this is, it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's adding this ability to shift into what is really happening to me right now on the most basic sensate level. Let me give you an example right now. I'm going to say some, a few notes and then I'll, I'll explain them. So what's happening for me right now is pressure. You know, the pressure of my feet on the floor, the tingling. I can feel tingling in my fingertips. I can feel warmth, right? I'm wearing a big robe and I'm standing in sunlight, right? I can feel warmth. Uh, but there's a difference between a more skillful note is seeing, not sunlight. Sunlight is a conceptual category and a, and a name for something. So it's more like seeing, hearing, vibrating, pressure, coolness, thinking. That's noting. And you might do that for five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And what you find from this, that some of you recall I mentioned earlier, it can be really, really destabilizing. Uh, unlike, because uh, you can just begin to feel really kind of, you begin to kind of see like, I'm built up of these, all these constituent sensory parts. You start to get direct perceptual, existential, experiential insight into what Buddhism calls the three characteristics. Buddhists love lists. There's all these lists of stuff, and one of them is the three characteristics, which is that reality is about non-self, it is impermanent, and it is ultimately unsatisfactory. Why is it unsatisfactory? Because everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, that's, and that's unsatisfactory. So I, I think if you were to talk about how do you know you're making progress in mindfulness, it's at least two things, and there, we could talk about this whole other thing. Like, you know, with concentration, we could talk. There's some really fascinating uh, Tibetan maps about, uh, and if you want to look into that, Chuladasa has a great book called The Mind Illuminated. If you want to see that with mindfulness, we could look at the the classical um, six stages or sixteen stages, depending on which map you want to use of the progress of insight. But Basically, I think early on you can look at, am I having greater sensory clarity, greater clarity about each of these little notes? And, it, and am I having a sort of basic ability to have increasing what, what Joseph Goldstein calls uh, NPMs, notes per minute? 
you know, are you, can you really increasingly pretty rapid fire these things? Like really have this, like the reason mindfulness has all these dots, there is always so much happening with us. You know, right now, in real time, notice what's happening with you, right? Like, like just on the basic sensate level. I mean, I can just feel heat and seeing and tingling and pressure and thinking. Like, it's just, it's all happening, like, right now, all the time. Uh, so you begin to get this sense of, like, the ability to deconstruct yourself. You know, it's not that the self isn't real. It's that it's, it's a construction, uh, and I don't have time to go super deep into that, but uh, another of uh, Joseph Goldstein's teachers used to tell him, your problem is not that you're not real, it's that you think you're really real. <laughs> and you're just another thing that's going to arise and pass away, like everything else. So if I had to give you one uh, tip about um, mindfulness, it would be this. This comes from Kenneth Folk. Try put, especially early on, like I was doing kind of just free form, one, one word noting, uh, often ending in ing, which can be helpful to kind of give you that sense of the, the kind of participle form that it's for the grammar nerds out there, uh, that it's, uh, this is kind of a, again happening. Uh, just put the phrase there is in front of everything. You know, there is blank. And I'll just give you one example. Think about the difference between saying, I am anxious and there is anxiety. That can be all, to me, it was a revelation. It just, it takes something, instead of identifying with this as a one-to-one -one correlation, like just say, I am sad versus, oh, there's sadness, right? To me, it just, it makes it workable. It just, it give, it's developing that witness stance. There is blank. There is blank. And, it, and knowing that it's not the only thing, right? Oh, there's sadness. But there's also joy. There's also interest. There's also pressure. There's also heat. There's this myriad of things happening in the arising and passing away of every present moment. All right, let's keep, keep going on our journey um, around to heartfulness. And here I want to draw your attention to uh, the ways these are all interconnected and mutually informing and strengthening. Because I'll, I'll give you an example that heartfulness is maybe the single most helpful thing you can do if you're struggling with concentration. If you sit down to meditate with this intention to concentrate and you're just all worked up, you know, like you just heard what happened to Salman Rushdie, you know, and all, you know, it's all these terrible things in the world and you're just, you just can't concentrate. One of the most helpful things you can do is what I'm about to talk about. Just do what Kristen Neff has all these um, self-compassion practices. Just put, you can try this with me right now. Just put one hand on heart center and one hand on your gut and just say, this is hard. This is hard. You know, this is a moment of suffering and pain and unsatisfactoriness. Just naming that. And then naming that this is not unique to you, right? That being human is hard. And then setting the gentle intention to the greatest extent that is possible to you, for you in this moment. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I offer myself loving kindness. May I wish for myself peace and ease and joy. And just spending even just a few moments doing that, you may find that, whew, now I'm ready to concentrate. Now I'm ready to follow my breath in a more peaceful and easeful way. So these really, this contemplative cross-training, these really do mutually inform and strengthen one another. I want to very quickly um, walk you through uh, the four classic ways of practicing heartfulness in the, in the Buddhist tradition. And this is really about a journey. It's that 18-inch journey that can be very short but all-important and that some people never do. The 18-inch journey from your head down to your heart. That's what heartfulness is about. Uh, the most well-known is metta. And not meta like in Greek, not meta like metaphysics, like beyond, meta like Pali, the ancient Indian language of the Hindu subcontinent, meta, M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness or loving friendliness. And here I just want to briefly bring in um, Buddhist psychology, has this fascinating uh, uh, conception about far enemies and near enemies that can really help uh, illustrate and help us understand what this means. So the far enemy of loving kindness is hate 
or ill will. That's the far enemy, the opposite. But the near enemy is actually attachment and greed. The difference between loving kindness to someone and like, uh, what was that? Uh, was it Animaniacs? The whole like, I want to love you and squeeze you and make you my very own. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a fine line between hugging someone in a way that feels consensual and good to them and holding someone down so they can't get away, right? Like, so that's the difference between the loving kindness and the near enemy, attachment and greed. And I'll give you just one story about this. Uh, I was walking by, I'd been doing a ton of heartfulness practices, you know, may I be filled with loving kindness, may I be uh, peaceful and at ease, and then may you, and then may we, and may all sentient beings. I was walking my dog uh, after having done that a lot, and uh, I won't get lost in the story, but this woman, my dog used the bathroom in this person's yard, and this woman approached me and said, uh, is that your yard? And I said, is it your yard? <laughs> I was pretty sure it wasn't, because this is like a few blocks from my house. And she's like, no. And she's like, you shouldn't let your dog uh, use the bathroom. She had just urinated, by the way. Uh, and, and, she, and I said, okay, I hear that. And she just kept accosting me. And I found myself just saying, may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be peaceful and at ease. And I'm going to walk the other way. And that was, could have gone really differently, right? That could have really escalated, but just, it, so doing this, practice doesn't make perfect, but it makes more permanent. It makes things more second nature, more naturally at hand. Uh, the second of the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas are these, these four ways that I'm going through. They mean uh, the sublime or divine Brahma. So some of you know like Brahmins, the, the highest caste. And so Brahma means di um, divine or sublime, and Vihara means abode or dwelling. So these are the divine abodes. So metta, karuna is compassion. Its far enemy is cruelty. You know, so compassion, far enemy, cruelty. The near enemy is altruistic narcissism doing stuff because you want to be noticed doing it, right? So, and that's not to say that, like, you should get all, like, up in your head about this. Like, am I, am I visiting this person in the hospital because it makes me feel good? Like, my, my CPE, clinical pastoral education, my uh, supervisor used to say, whatever gets you to visit, like, the bedside of sick people, like, she's like, it's fine. But it, it's, it's the wanting to be seen doing it. That's the sort of uh, thing you want to be aware of, not the, you know, if you get joy from, like, Visiting someone who's sick or lonely, that's good. That, that, that's, that's a good thing. That's fine. Um, so, and, and I think another piece of compassion is self-compassion. Again, Kristen Neff, NEFF, is really good on this, of just saying, what would, what would I say to a friend in this situation? And that can also just really unlock things. Like, we're often really compassionate to our friends and really hard on ourselves. So... Uh, the third of the Brahma Viharas is mudita, or empathetic joy. And this is the number one thing that has like, changed my relationship to social media over the last few years. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. And it is joy at other people's joy. So the opposite of the far enemy of empathetic joy is jealousy, or what the uh, Germans call schadenfreude, right? Schadenfreude literally means harm joy, joy at seeing other people harmed. Uh, the near enemy is grasping out of insufficiency or lack. But empathetic joy to me on social media, uh, if I find jealousy coming up, I try to, I don't manufacture joy. That's the biggest thing, confusion people have here is they think, I've got to make myself joyful that this other person's joyful. <laughs> no, it is just about opening your heart and allowing their joy to flow into you. And the way that sometimes people best understand this, have you ever walked beside or come upon a, a people that were grieving? You had no relationship to them, but you still felt their grief flowing into you? This is the same thing. It's just with joy. Just opening yourself. You see somebody, you know, they're off, they're doing some fun thing. Just allowing their joy into you. You don't have to manufacture it. You just have to open your heart to it instead of keeping your little closed heart and saying, and, and hatred and jealousy, and which, none of which is going to change them, right? That's not going to make, do you know that whole, like, uh, uh, you know, resentment is like drinking poison and wishing the other person died, right? Like, it's just not, it's not, it's not helpful. Uh, the final one is uh, equanimity. The far enemy is greed or resentment, and the near enemy is indifference or apathy. Equanimity is not indifference. It is not 
apathy. It is a, it is a, a balancedness. Um, Brene Brown and Joan Halifax have combined into a definition of equanimity that they say that equanimity is about strong back, soft front, and wild heart. Strong back, whatever's coming. You're not just a pushover, but not armoring up, right? That's what Brene Brown says. Like, don't, don't armor up. It's not, it's not worth it. Just let that criticism that's not worthy of you fall to the wayside, right? It's not worth armoring up your heart. Strong back, soft front, and wild heart that is open to all the unexpected things that can come our way in this life. And just that gesture of putting your hand on heart center and on your gut, that alone can be really, really powerful. It's not even too strange to do it in the grocery store, you know, just uh, just to do this and just take a deep breath in and out. That's heartfulness. Uh, moving around to bodyfulness, that's um, represented by the tree. So we skipped over the cloud. We'll come back to it in a second. Uh, if you uh, sort of look, there's been this real um, rise. You know, if you start in like the mid-19th century when you first get some of our Unitarian ancestors, the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau took a copy of the Bhagavad Gita to Walden Pond and, you know, the... the um, Margaret Fuller is, you know, a, a editor of The Dial, the Transcendentalist Journal, publishing the Lotus Sutra for the first time in English. So you start there to see this slow build and, of course, a little bit of rise in the 50s and then the 60s, a big spike in people talking about things like meditation and mindfulness. But then much more recently, people start talking more about heartfulness. And then just a little bit, people are starting to catch on to bodyfulness. So I talked about a lot of meditation is, is done neck up. And then sort of you start to get a little more advanced. Some people start with heartfulness. That's an excellent way to start. You know, some people once asked Jack Cornfield, you know, because the classical way of kind of doing, at least in ter- the Theravadan tradition, is sort of getting really stabilized through concentration and then bringing in mindfulness. It's kind of the classic steps. But they asked him, you know, can heartfulness wake you up? And Cornfield said, if love can't wake you up, I don't know what can. You know, so it's like, of course, heartfulness is a, profound Dharma gate. But people are also kind of waking up into the, also the importance of bodyfulness. And just like in the, some parts of the Christian tradition, some parts of the Buddhist tradition have been really anti-body, but it can be really profound. And I've, uh, and I'll say one thing I wish I'd known earlier on is that there are four equally valid ways of doing pretty much any form of meditation. Sitting is all that most people know. But, and also sitting in a chair is also fine. You don't have to be on a meditation cushion. The, the thing about a meditation cushion is that if you're falling asleep, you kind of start to fall over, whereas a chair can sometimes be a little too supportive. Uh, but if that's what your body needs, it's fine. But in addition to sitting, standing is an equally, and, and that's something I do sometimes. If I am sleepy meditating, I just stand up. I don't, I don't interrupt the meditation. I just stand up for maybe a minute or five minutes. So sitting, standing, Walking, uh, I do running meditation. That's a, that's a not, a, but it's kind of a variation on walking. I do re- so. I just like leave my phone at home and just go. I call it just running, right? Like you just sitting, just running. Um, and the other one that's least well known is um, kind of in the Buddhist. It's more well known in yoga. Is is lying down can be a really powerful way of, of meditating. And Reggie Ray often has you do it, uh, like put a, if, uh, put a bolster under your, like a pillow under your knees, because that flattens your back. Uh, but it's basically Shavasana. If you've been at the very end of a yoga practice, you do Shavasana, um, corpse pose. And that can be a really, really, uh, and uh, the biggest thing that happens to people is they fall asleep, of course. And I sometimes tell people, you know, stage zero of a meditation practice is getting enough sleep. Because if you're continuing, to, you know, that, that may be the, the beginning. Though the, the flip side of that is sometimes actually doing some meditation practice can help you get to sleep. So it is a little, another of those kind of chicken and egg situations. Another thing I kind of wish I'd known is that relaxing your body, just like with relaxing your expectations, is incredibly key to, to sort of making progress on the meditation path. Relaxing your body and relaxing your expectations. Opening yourself up not to what you think this meditation should be like, but opening yourself up just to what it is like. After your meditation is the time to get analytical and think about, is that what should have happened or what just happened or whatever? But like during your meditation, you will get a lot further if you just let go, 
you know, it's that whole trust, let go, and float. Like, just, just kind of let the practice do you. And if you're interested in getting to know more about bodyfulness, I, I really love Reggie Ray's stuff on Dharma Ocean. Uh, and uh, you can, lots of free guided meditations there. So let me just say a little bit about um, awareness. Awareness is a kind of skipping to the end practice. And, and some people have, very, you know, there's a saying that awakening experiences, so awakening is a much more skillful translation than enlightenment. Enlightenment is a confusing word, a much better translation of that word. Uh, you know, Buddha means awakened one, right? It's uh, just like Christ isn't Jesus's last name. Buddha isn't Buddha's name. His name is Siddhartha Gautama, and he got a title called Buddha, awakened one. So it's about having an awakening experience. And that some people, there's a saying that awakening experiences are accidents, and meditation makes you accident prone. Uh, and so some people stumble backward into these experiences as children, during childbirth, people have awakening, like various near-death experience, various different things, ha- people have these. Uh, but awareness experiences are trying to just, to just, to just go there. Uh, that's what these are about. They really work well for some people, and some people find them incredibly frustrating. So, like, you know, give it a shot, and it may or may not work for you. But my, my favorite, the, the biggest metaphor here, like with the, the sun, is that oh, the, the claim of awareness, and the claim really of the Buddhist tradition, is we are already awakened, but we have a lot of layering on top of that. So just like how the sun, the sun's always there. It may sometimes be behind stormy weather, you know, our various internal climate, the sun's always out. And that, that's what awareness is, is coming to realize, that there is always already, our consciousness is always already vast, open, still, timeless, and deep, deeply, deeply loving. That that's just sort of, it's always already there just like the sun, is always out. And Michael Taft, is, is the single best uh, meditation teacher in the Bay Area, has the best analogy I've found. He talks about, so I have two dogs. Uh, one of my dogs, if you throw the ball, she'll bring it back, and we can play. And I throw the ball, and she brings it back. I have another dog, I throw the ball, and he runs to, the, he runs to his little hole in the yard, and, he, and we can't play. And he's just, you know, you try to get it, and he's like smog with his jewels. You know, like he won't, he won't, he won't play. And so Taft says, awareness meditation, it's just about, it's nothing more than dropping the ball. Try this with me right now. Hold your fist out tight, real tight. That's how, that's how a lot of us are a lot of the time. And then just let it go. Just, that's, aware, that's awareness meditation. He said, it's, it's what's called effortless meditation. You know, is that really effort to let go, or is it just opening yourself up to effortlessness? Just whatever you're clenched around, just, just let it go. If you notice your mind is clenching around a thought, just drop the ball. If you notice it's clenching around an emotion, just, just drop the ball. That is literally what this meditation is, and allowing yourself increasingly to open into that essential nature of mind that's always already there, that's open and vast. Uh, My meditation teacher, Vince, uh, often says that the logic of samsara, samsara is that wheel that we're caught up on, the logic of samsara is if this, then that. If I do this, I'll get something else, right? Quid pro quo. The logic of nirvana is just this. That's what awareness is meant. It, it is always already just this. Every moment is nothing other. It's just this. It's no if this, then that. It's just this. Uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, be a businessless person when you're on the cushion, just sitting, just being, nothing to do. Nowhere to go. You know, it's like uh, pretend you're in the matrix, you know. What if I told you, you are already a Buddha. You are already awake. That's what awareness meditation is about, taking that dignified stance. I'm already awakened. I'm already a Buddha. Just go there. Take it for a test drive. There is no figuring this out with the cognitive mind. This is Reggie Ray. 
There's no figuring that, and that's what's held me up for a long time because I'm really good at figuring stuff out with my cognitive mind. This you cannot figure out with your cognitive mind. There is no academic degree, degree to achieve. There is no efforting your way there. There is no striving your way there. Just drop the ball. Releasing, relaxing, letting go. So I want to move you in a second as we're nearing the end of this service into the sixth and final um, way of um, meditation. But before we do that, I want to ask if our ushers would come forward. So in the, uh, we're going to sort of go with the Buddhist tradition of what is called dana or generosity for our offering this morning. And I just want to ask you, you know, have you received any benefit from this teaching this morning? Uh, either for yourself or your perception of the benefit it can bring to others? Or just what generosity are you feeling to either make a donation right now if you're here in the sanctuary? Or I know some of you have already signed up for ongoing donations. Or if you're online, you can go to the Give link on our website, frederickuu.org, and sign up for a one-time or recurring donation. So as I go through this last piece of inquiry, the, uh, the ushers will pass the offering baskets. Give as you feel led. So the final of our six ways, and again, there are 10,000 ways to meditate, is that question mark. And this is, inquiry is a practice of using short questions, and you just meditate in whatever position your body wants to be in, and you just drop these questions periodically into your consciousness, and then give it a little space, give it a little silence, ask it with real curiosity. Has anybody lost their keys recently or can remember doing that? Ask this question like you're looking for your keys. Like you really don't know where your keys are. You're like, where are my keys? <laughs> you know, like, so ask with real curiosity. Questions like, what is meditation? Like you're really not sure. What is it? Who am I? That's a real classical one, like Ramana Maharshi, right? Who, who am I, really? On the other side of my stories, right now in this, who am I? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> right? Who are we? Who are we together? Yeah, who are we? Who would I be without my stories? Sit with that question a little bit. Here's another one. This, this, this one's intense. Since death alone is certain, since death alone is certain, and the time of death uncertain, what should I do? Sit with that question for a while. Since death alone... Let me, I got news for you. None of us are getting out of this alive. You know, <laughs> since death alone is certain and the time of death uncertain, what should I do? Or simpler, what is mine to do? What is mine to do? What's mine not to do? What wants to emerge? A classic example, I think this is also Ramana Maharshi, of an inquiry practice is you, you do these like you're, imagine you're, you're poking at a fire with a stick or even stirring ash, hot ashes with a stick. That's what this what's going to happen to that stick eventually? It's going to be consumed by the fire, right? That's what tends to happen. You're stirring the ashes, you're asking the question, and then eventually it, it opens up. Like a classic example is the, uh, what is the sound of one hand clapping, right? This will connect us back to awareness. So if you've heard that, let me give you an answer. It's not really about the sound, right? You ask the question, it's about listening. It's about listening for something you will never hear. It's really about the listening, right? And that's the way inquiry can open you into awareness. Um, so I will say thank you to the ushers. Uh, thank you for your generosity to all who gave. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, if you, I think this is at the very bottom of, I know it is because it's right here, at the very bottom of this handout, uh, you'll see the graphic comes from Buddhist Geeks. You can click on that link if you want to learn more about this graphic. Uh, underneath that is frederickuu.org slash meditation. That's not on our homepage, but if you type that in, it'll take you to a list of resources, including if you look under the section on that page called Intermediate and Advanced Meditation, you will find a list there of about three different books for each of these six ways, and, quite, and it's sort of my curated reading list, and, and those are in order. So like the first bullet point under each of these is kind of like the intro, the second is a little more advanced, and the third is a little more advanced beyond that. And if you want more beyond that, just, just email me. I will be teaching a six-week meditation class probably starting in late October, early November. Uh, for now, let me say this.
Whatever goodness our practice has brought, may we dedicate it to all those who suffer. Whatever insight or joy we have found this morning, may we willingly share it with all beings generously. Whatever merit our practice has generated, may it be multiplied for the happiness and the welfare of all sentient beings. And as you prepare to go from this place and into the week to come, may you continue your journey with love. And now you've got all those heartfulness practices to cultivate, right? To continue your journey with loving kindness, with compassion, with equanimity, with empathetic joy. May you continue your journey with love. May you care for one another. May you care for yourself. May you care for this one earth. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of love, of peace, of hope, of joy. That truly does go with you out into the world. We are different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving. Go in peace.